Hey everybody, welcome to part two of Is This the End? A, a two-parter about the end times. You know, among pastors, there's this cliche that if, if you want to have an attendance spike in your church, do a series on the end times or on the topic of sex, I always thought maybe the combination of the two would really, you know, bring in the people in droves. Will there be sex in the end times? I'm afraid my take on eschatology, the study of, of last things, is a little short on the dramatic. I do believe it's the most biblical, but this is one dude's opinion. And again, this is not a topic we are going to divide on, okay? Maybe it will spur on some thinking, some studying, which I was super encouraged to hear part one last week did exactly that for, for some people. So let's kick it off, shall we? The Antichrist. Uh, been in pop culture a lot. And with all the fascination with the Antichrist, there, there must be a ton of scripture about it. Who is this Antichrist? The reformers back in the day, almost without exception, believed that the papal system was the Antichrist. If you were alive during uh, World War II, uh, most believed that Mussolini or Hitler was the Antichrist. So how much does the Bible talk about the Antichrist? You ready for this? Four verses. That's it. All by John in his letters, 1st and 2nd John. Now, before that though, if you have a Bible and you have one of those Bibles that gives a little synopsis of, of what the book you're reading is about, gives you some context. I'll bet almost every one of your Bibles will say that this letter, First uh, John, was refuting a heresy which was infiltrating the church in a big way. See, John is evangelizing to the Greek world. And there is this Greek philosophy that there is a spiritual world and a natural world and the natural world is ugh, gross, corrupt. The spiritual world is perfect. Uh, any smarty pants out there know what that's called? Gnosticism, you're right. And percentage-wise, it's the largest heresy or cult in the history of the church. So maybe you're thinking, that doesn't sound so heretical. It is, because what that belief means is that Jesus could not have taken on flesh um, they're like, no way, God's good. He couldn't have taken on gross, bad, natural flesh. So that's Socrates, that's Plato, that's Aristotle philosophy. You're imprisoned in a corrupt body for a time before you become spirit. Okay, that sounds close to the truth and there's some truth to it, but you can see how this is unscriptural. It robs the beauty of the gospel that God left the perfection of heaven to become Emmanuel, God with us, the God who pursues us. So in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 1, he lays out his thesis statement. We were with him. We saw him. We touched him. He came from heaven. They couldn't believe God would take on flesh. And then in in, in Chapter four, verse one, here's what John writes. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus 
is Antichrist. Now, you ask most Christians in North America who the Antichrist is. Well, they say, well, it's a world leader coming in the future, possessed by Satan. He'll deceive many and usher in the tribulation, you know, cut off some heads of Christians who won't receive the mark of the beast. That, right? Okay, what the Bible actually seems to be saying about the Antichrist is that it's a spirit. It's a belief system, specifically Gnosticism, a spirit that denies Jesus came in the flesh. Also in that verse, it says that that spirit is, is now in the world, at, at least in the world at John's time. Um, I think we could make an argument it's in the world in the, in the 21st century. Then in chapter two, he says, many antichrists have appeared. That's in John's lifetime in the first century. And in, in verse 22, the one who denies the father and the son, that's the antichrist. And then in second John, uh, verse seven, we come to that definition again. The antichrist denies that Jesus came in the flesh from the father. So that's it that you've just read everything about the antichrist as far as it being referred to in the Bible. And yet that's not what most North American Christians believe. I mean, you can go on Amazon and get a hundred different books on the antichrist. I don't know how they're getting all this material from four verses. Well, isn't there some reference to a beast in revelation? Isn't that the antichrist actually? And I wish I had, you know, time to get into all of this research. Uh, but just to say that most of church history, people have understood the beast in Revelation 17 to actually refer to Nero. You have to really stretch credulity to, to make the beast from Revelation into the Antichrist. Now, I don't want to blame anybody for this misunderstanding, but let's just say there are certain books I wish would get left behind, right? Okay, but isn't the Antichrist supposed to force us to take the mark of the beast? Well, let me first say this. Did you know that the mark of God or the seal of God, which is written on the foreheads of his people, are mentioned in the book of Revelation exactly the same number of times as the mark of the beast. Both are mentioned seven times. That should tell us something. The fact that the left behind crowd are always talking about the mark of the beast and never or rarely even mention the mark of God maybe tells us that things might be a little out of balance in their teachings. You know, as Christians, shouldn't we be more interested in the mark of, of God who is alive today and active in our lives than we are in the mark of some beast that we're not sure what is or who is. And so as we interpret the Bible to be consistent, we've got to at least understand the mark of the beast from a similar frame of interpretation as the mark of God. So that means if the mark of the beast is to be understood literally, then we've got to understand the mark of God literally. 
On the other hand, if we, if we take the mark of the beast spiritually, allegorically, then we should take the mark of God spiritually, allegorically. So then why do some put fear in people by talking about a computer chip being placed in the foreheads of people? Do they also believe that the mark of God will be a computer chip? Of course not. Again, if one is literal, the other has to be literal. If one is spiritual, the other is spiritual. It's a hermeneutical rule of interpreting scripture, consistency. Many modern end times teachers use Daniel 9 to, to glean much of their information about, about the evil one world ruler they believe is, is coming in our future. I got to say, there, there is no mention of an Antichrist figure in Daniel 9. Again, the commentaries written before Darby, the 1830s, they agree that this passage is about Jesus, not the Antichrist. But just for the sake of conjecture, suppose we believe Daniel 9 is about a Satan-possessed Antichrist figure. Here's what would need to happen in the future, according to, to Daniel 9. The temple in Jerusalem would have to be rebuilt on the same spot as the current Dome of the Rock, a Muslim holy mosque. A functional Jewish priesthood would have to be reinstated. Um, animal sacrifice would have to be reinstated in this rebuilt temple. The Antichrist would have to make a covenant with the whole world for three and a half years. Um, the Antichrist would have to enter that temple, sit down as God and end that reestablished animal sacrifice. Plus, I'd, I'd kind of like to show you in a minute why I think Daniel 9 has already been fulfilled by Christ. So, <laughs> you know, the author of the, the book that I've been referring to in this series, Victorious Eschatology, uh, said one time he was teaching on this very topic and a lady from the congregation stood up and maybe this was you know, the final straw of having her belief system rocked. But she, she stood up and she said, don't take my antichrist from me. <laughs> and I don't want to take anyone's antichrist from them. But maybe it's why we're, we're told again and again in scripture to, to look up, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. Okay. Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation, it's assumed that it's the, the end times book. And uh, surprisingly, it's less so than you might think. I, I realize this is way too big a topic to cover this morning. But can I just give you a couple of thoughts? The book is written to a Christian population, seven churches in Asia. Some of it is clear to the Christian today. You know, it's, it's unambiguous. Uh, some of it uh, in 2020 is, is not clear to say the least. We don't live in that time or culture or, or, uh, have access to the symbols used in that, in the first century. If the book isn't clear to us, it was most likely clear to his audience, uh, in the first century. There are things about the book that are certainly applicable to us. I know the letters were written to seven real churches, specific churches, but they can be broadly instructive 
and encouraging and rebuking to all Christians who, who follow Jesus. Now, John wrote the book saying there are things that have happened that will happen and are happening. Some of them, even in the unseen spiritual world, I think this is the big takeaway though, for me, the book is not called revelations as in, you know, revelations about the future. That's a common mistake. It's called revelation as in, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. You are learning things about the person of Jesus. It's a disclosure of who Christ is, the lamb who sits on the throne. And remember too, that John is writing to some specific people going through some specifically hard times of persecution. And it, and it does force me to ask the question, if this letter was meant to be a highly coded puzzle slash map to the end times, so that we could decode the future apocalypse, you know, at least 2000 years after the people who are originally reading it would find applicable something to think about. Okay. Matthew 24, a good deal of our end time speculation, uh, quotes about the end times come from the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. So as I studied Matthew 24, I discovered that throughout church history, most Christians believed the events prophesied in Matthew 24 had already occurred during the destruction of Jerusalem in, in 70 AD. See, so, so here's how Matthew 24 starts. It starts with Jesus disciples admiring the temple and the buildings and the architecture. And Jesus says, Hey, um, don't get too attached. There's going to come a day when this will totally be leveled. And then in the next verse, the next verse. Okay. The disciples ask about the end of the age. This, this should have given us a hint maybe that this is a continued conversation about the destruction of the temple, the end of an era, the end of a system of a religion, the end of the old covenant. But we see that term end of the age. And we think the end of the world, the apocalypse, you could say we kind of make it about ourselves, right? Another clue is that Jesus is giving notice, very practical, very specific advice to his followers about how to stay alive during the 70 AD destruction. You know, we can tell from this passage that Jesus was speaking of a local destruction. He says to flee Judea. He says, you, you better hope it doesn't happen on a Sabbath. You know, it sounds like it's written to a very specific audience in a very specific locale at a specific time. For instance, you know, the natural tendency upon seeing an approaching army would have been to flee into Jerusalem for safety. And Jesus told them, no, fight your natural instinct and flee away from the city. And you know what? Because of Jesus's warning, his followers were protected. In fact, uh, historian George Peter Holford says history does not record that even one Christian perished in the siege of Jerusalem. I mean, 
That historical fact alone seems like incredible proof that the first century believers knew that Jesus was speaking to them about this 70 AD event. So uh, let me just back up for a second. Something I had to get my head around because I don't know about you, but I never learned about the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD in school, you know, blame the public school system. I, you know, even in Bible school, sure. I learned about it, but more as a quick history of Christendom, you need to know this. It might have been the ugliest, bloodiest, vilest attempted genocides in all of history. The history books do not record a comparable instance of such unnatural savagery ever occurring during the siege of any other place in any other age or nation. There's this guy, Josephus. He's a first century historian who ends up confirming all kinds of biblical facts, by the way. And he wrote that. Uh, let me quote him such a shocking violation of nature, never having been perpetrated by any Greek or barbarian. Like I, I started studying the details of the siege of Jerusalem by, by the Roman army who had, you know, finally had enough of these pockets of Jewish rebellion and insurgency. And then we're, we're given orders to just gut the place destroy the temple. Don't let one stone stand on another. And I don't have time for all the details, but just reading about it kind of left me queasy. The execution of children and babies and women, a record of blood flowing in the streets like rivers. It was, well, it might, it might as well have been Armageddon or the end of the world uh, for a specific group of people. You remember in Luke 23 and Jesus death was horrific. But you remember on his way to the cross, he, he wept for the women and children of Jerusalem. He said that their deaths would be far worse. There's this theologian and historian, John Lightfoot. He says of, of Jesus's words in Matthew 24, that Jesus is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's so evident both by the disciples question and by the whole thread of Christ's discourse, it is a wonder any should understand these words of the day and hour referring to the last judgment. I think the proof is kind of clear. I mean, Jesus declares all of this would happen within that generation. How long is a generation? It's commonly considered, you know, both biblically and non-biblically that a, a generation is 40 years. The prophecy was literally fulfilled in AD 70, exactly 40 years after Jesus declared it. I mean, come on and think about this. If we step back and remember the disciples had no idea that Jesus was about to die and be resurrected, it kind of seems impossible to think they were asking Jesus about his second coming, which would, you know, be thousands of years away. Um, it totally fits with the other hints Jesus had dropped the other kinds of questions. The disciples were asking about a new kingdom, a new way of doing things about the, uh, increasingly corrupted sacrificial 
and priesthood system. They knew the end of the age was the end of an era in Jewish history and religion. The destruction of the temple meant the end of the sacrificial system. It spelled the end of the priesthood, the end of the whole system of atonement established by Moses. Like it ended officially the old covenant. And and this is what the disciples were asking Jesus about. Um, Can I just show you one, one more thing? And, And you're, you're going to feel like I'm getting even deeper into the weeds here. I may lose some people, but I just find this personally really cool, really persuasive. And I hope I can simplify this and, uh, and explain it well. Um, okay. We, we talked about Daniel, right? Last week, he had this dream about uh, an everlasting kingdom that would come. Uh, it would, it, it would take place 490 years from now in which the old covenant would be gone and new covenant would be established. A Messiah would come, right? Well, in the next verse, God also stated that he wouldn't start the countdown clock right away, that there would be 490 years would start when the king uh, gave the edict, I guess, to rebuild Jerusalem. He also announced in his, this passage exactly when the, the son, the Messiah would come to Israel. So from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, there will be uh, seven sevens and 72 sevens. Okay. That's 483 years. Okay. So check this out. The edict to restore Jerusalem was given in 457 BC under Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. You can read all this in, in Ezra seven. So from the time when Artaxerxes declared, uh, to rebuild in 457 until AD 27 was exactly 483 years. You know what happened in AD 27? Yeah. Jesus came onto the scene. He he starts his ministry. He announces it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news, to, to set the oppressed free. Right. Okay. But the dream slash prophecy in Daniel isn't over. God tells Daniel, there will be uh, seven more, more years of mercy. So that brings the total number up to 490, right? 483 plus seven, 490 years. And he states that halfway through those last seven years, the Messiah will form a new covenant and put an end to the old covenant and its sacrificial system. So pop quiz, what happens three and a half years after Jesus begins his ministry on earth? Oh, I don't know. How about Jesus once and for all sacrifice on the cross? for the world's sin, um, his death, the perfect spotless lamb, the tearing of the temple curtain, symbolizing access to God for everyone, uh, his resurrection, proving that God has power over sin and death, his ascension to heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the father and he rules and reigns. I mean, it is the timing, not just a little spooky. Well, what about the second half? of that uh, seven years, the other three and a half. Do you know what happened approximately 
three and a half years after Jesus' death and resurrection, a fellow named Stephen was stoned to death, which was approved by the chief ruler of the synagogue. It was like it marked the end of God's mercy clock for Jerusalem. And not long after that, God gave Peter the vision of the unclean animals and sent him to evangelize um, Cornelius's house, the Gentile. God converted Paul. And that begins this whole new era of the gospel spreading far and wide among the Gentiles. The gospel is for everyone. So, so this completed the 490 years of mercy that God had extended to his people. I mean, it's amazing really how the timeline works out. You know, the most famous Bible commentator of all time, uh, Matthew Henry said of this Daniel prophecy that we have the most illustrious prediction of Christ and gospel grace that is in all the old Testament. Now, dispensationalists left behind Christians believe that last seven years of Daniel nine haven't happened yet. Okay. They agree the first 483 years, how could they not? But they've arbitrarily said that the last seven years has yet to happen. They say, you know, this will be the tribulation and the rise of the antichrist. And and then Christ will come at the end of it. Um, Can you see why it's hard to separate those last seven years with some, you know, indeterminable gap between the first 483 years and the last seven? It it seems like one of the most unnatural, non-literal interpretations of scripture found in any eschatology system. And, you know, all throughout the New Testament, the early church seems focused on this coming description destruction of Jerusalem. It was actually an integral part of the good news that Jesus brought. The judgment would begin at the house of God. God was going to fully establish his spiritual kingdom, which meant the removal of the previous establishment. And so the early church referred to this coming event, the destruction of the temple, um, the execution of much of Jerusalem in, in 70 AD. They used terms like last days, the end of the age, um, the day of judgment. And I didn't know that the vast majority of our church leaders and church fathers throughout history believed Matthew 24 had already happened in 70 AD. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but now you know. So, so Daniel nine prophesies the exact date of the Messiah's arrival, the Messiah's death, the end of the old covenant, the confirming of the new covenant, the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And it fits right in line with, with Jesus own Jerusalem prophecy in Matthew 24, you know, Jesus shook the old system and, and just left an unshakable kingdom. Amen. The rapture. Okay. Well, uh, Jonathan, if there's no great tribulation and there's no antichrist, then do you believe in the return of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. 100%. You can take it to the bank. Praise God. Jesus is coming again. It's, it's, it's one of the four 
pillars of this denomination we call the Christian and Missionary Alliance, you know, that Jesus is our savior. He's our sanctifier. He's our healer and he's our coming king. You mean like the rapture? Sort of. Um, see, first Thessalonians says we'll be caught up. You know, the word rapture actually doesn't appear in the Bible. It's, it's, it's from a, a Latin word, raptura. But, but Jesus is coming back and we will be caught up. But unlike the dispensationalists who believes, you know, we'll be taken away for seven years. You know, you leave a little pile of clothes and then come back. Uh, I want us to think about the context where this verse comes from. The Thessalonian church okay, is under tremendous persecution. And so these letters are Paul's encouragement to them. You know, many of the, of the church members had been put to death, martyred for their faith. And this is the context in which Paul is writing. Paul didn't hint uh, that there was a coming great tribulation under a one world ruler called the Antichrist. And and that, you know, God would rapture Christians 2000 years after he wrote the letter. In fact, he made it clear that he was writing this letter to comfort his church, um, his first century readers, you know, regarding giving them comfort by, by, by talking about what would happen to those who had died. You know, prior to the, the creation of the rapture doctrine in, in the 1830s, Every published commentary interpreted first Thessalonians four as referring to the believer's resurrection. It says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. In this passage, the word translated as rise is actually the same Greek word that is translated um, be resurrected. You know, believers will be um, immortal. We will have imperishable bodies. The dead in Christ will be changed it says in the twinkling of an eye, I think the original Greek meaning of that means super duper fast. Okay. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Praise God. Even after this rapture teaching came out in the 1800s, it didn't really gain traction until the Schofield Bible in 1909. We talked about that, but it really took off in Western thinking um, after that. Because frankly, wouldn't it be much nicer to get raptured than to live through another world war one, another great depression, another world war two. And you could say rapture fever sort of spread, not because it makes the most biblical sense, but maybe because it was probably enticing to those who desired an escape from the trauma of the early 1900s. But look, Technically, I believe in a rapture. I think you should believe in a rapture, just maybe not the rapture that is commonly taught. Because look, I hope we can all agree that Jesus 
will return to earth. We will meet him or welcome him in the air and be caught up. Or some translations say, become like him together. So, so technically, yes, that's the rapture of the church in that there will be a day in the future when we are all changed in the twinkling of an eye, when we receive our glorious, perfect bodies. It, it might look like this with Jesus sort of coming down and us coming up and we sort of join him in the middle. I don't know, but I just find it really hard to build a case for the other rapture theology. Seven years gone, then returning with Christ and sort of a second, second coming. And just to remind you, what I'm saying here isn't new. It's actually the historic interpretation from our church fathers. So while a lot of prophecy, I believe, has already taken place, there are yet three major prophetic events yet to come. Okay, the physical return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment. Folks, I believe we can live optimistically about the end times. You know, we can plan long-term, raise godly kids, reject thoughts of fear, work as members of the bride of Christ, the church. I would say, even if I'm wrong about the specifics of all this, what, what have I lost? I won't have buried my talents or spent my life in fear trying to figure out dates and, and try and guess who the Antichrist is. I believe in the victorious view of the kingdom of God, that it is both here and it's growing. And God is always winning. And so just as we close, I, just take one moment here to look at Acts 1 verse 6. Here they are 2,000 years ago, and they're saying, Lord, is this it? Is the end nigh? Are you going to restore your kingdom to Israel? 2,000 years later, and Christians are still kind of obsessed with the question, right? There's nothing wrong with speculative fiction. But here's my point. 2,000 years ago, the disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, we want to know more about the end times. And here's what Jesus' response is, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. When the disciples had an unhealthy interest in the end times, much like a lot of Christians in North America do, Jesus said, don't get focused on that. Instead, he said in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Maybe if God's people would spend as much time and money and thinking how to be witnesses as they do obsessing about the end times, you know, maybe we wouldn't be living on the only continent in the world where the church is not growing. You know, we've become fascinated with the very things that Jesus said not to worry about. Isn't that interesting? Maybe we need a shift from a rapture mentality to a harvest theology. You know, Christians who focus on the harvest don't really have much time to worry about a rapture. But we still say, 
come Lord Jesus, come. I think of those who are sick in their bodies right now and they long for that glorified, perfected body. Come Lord Jesus, come. I think of those who are sick and tired with all that is wrong in the world. And you know, when Paul says in Romans that all creation is groaning for redemption. Ah, oh, man, it, I, we totally believe that. The world seems like it's groaning daily. And yet, contrary to all appearances, creation is groaning, not in the throes of death, but in the pangs of birth. Creation is not sputtering out, but it's giving way to something. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I think of those who are seeking justice for an injustice that's been done to them. And I believe God would encourage them by saying, your foes have already been defeated. If you could look into the future with me, you would see that the enemies of the Lord are bowing a knee to him. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I thank you that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. Thank you, Jesus. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Amen. Thank you for sticking with this sort of dense teaching. Maybe not interesting to everybody, interesting to the Bible nerds out there. Um, I, I appreciate you watching church. We won't uh, be having to do this maybe much longer. Uh, I look forward to the day in a couple weeks when we can see some of you face to face. I want to remind those who do not feel they're ready to come back. I, we just bless you and release you. And we want to find ways to uh, honor you, engage you, and, and just, I never feel any kind of shame uh, for, for not attending in person until you feel ready. Thanks for watching church this morning. Um, more than that though, in this harvest theology especially, I ask you to go be the church. You are such a love people. God bless.